This is Periodically Political, brought to you by Elect STEM. We bring you stories of where politics intersects science. My name is Chris Caputo, and I'll be your co-host today, along with Darren Anderson. So we'd like to welcome our guest today, Dan Gibson. He represents Ward 1 in the Ontario Municipality of Guelph as a city councillor. Dan has a BSc from Trent University and a Master's in Environmental Science from the University of Toronto. He's also a senior environmental scientist and has over 15 years of public and private experience. So welcome to Periodically Political, Dan. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This is terrific. Thanks, Dan. So at Elect STEM, we seek stories of scientists and engineers who are actively involved in either policy or politics itself. So our first question is really, what made you decide to get involved in politics in the first place? (laughs) That's the million dollar question, I guess. Uh, So it's a long story, but I'll condense it down quite quickly. Ward 1 in Guelph is a very unique place, extremely diverse uh, politically, uh, socially, demographically, economically. Um, the, the city of Guelph has set up this ward system where Ward 1 in, encapsulates the downtown. So you've got your sort of core urban voter. You have uh, the, the, old, the old town neighborhood of the ward, um, which is sort of the original neighborhood of the ward with its own sort of voter interests and, and issues and concerns. Uh, you've got sort of the uh, estate manor style neighborhoods of St. George's Park, which is a gorgeous, but, you know, very mature neighborhoods, uh, century, century old homes. And then what you have in the east end of the city is this rapidly growing uh, single detached townhome, semi-detached home sort of a growth center where if, if you study municipal politics and sort of property tax a lot, a lot of the new growth areas, you know, they get a lot of the new tax burden. So you get a very similar concerns about taxation and concerns about affordability. And so when I, when I was living here in the East End, um, I, I just, I continued to ask questions about the representation of our ward. I didn't have many, many major issues with the two representatives we had other than they lived closer to the downtown. One of them uh, retired and gave up and sort of moved off his seat. So there's a vacancy. And I just saw an opportunity to serve my community in a different way, uh, represent the east end of the city as well as the rest of the wards, but really give a voice to the east end of our city, the east end of our ward, which really is about two thirds of the ward now. And, uh, and sort of brought those sort of front door issues to the table for the east end of the city. And, uh, and that was in 14 and 2018. I, I didn't change my message and we're still here. So it's going pretty good. That's great. Yeah, just the idea of serving your community, I think, is, mm-hmm. a, is a recurring theme we're getting through the podcast, which is, you know, I think probably the most important thing that a politician can do. <laughs> well, no more, no more than uh, in municipal politics, for sure. I mean, you are literally fielding phone calls about garbage, uh, roads, potholes, uh, snow plows. The, right. the front door issues are front and center at the municipal level. So you're actually the first municipal politician that we have you know, brought onto the podcast. So um, we've heard about how it is to run for office federally and provincially, but could you give us a bit of insight into what running for city council looks like? Sure. Uh, so I guess the major difference at the municipal level is that for most municipalities, excluding Toronto, Hamilton, and Ottawa, uh, municipal councillors are part-time. So while running for office at the municipal level, I was still working full-time, so putting 35 hours a week in the office, uh, tack on my commute, and then coming home and, and doing my door knocking. So it was uh, it's a massive commitment if you are going to do it right. Um, 
if you're going to build that sort of support that you need at the municipal level, you need to get to those front doors. You need to be listening to people. You know, when you first go out and start knocking, you're you're saying, I'm I'm Dan, and I'd love to serve the community in this way. But it it's not until about your thousandth or two thousandth door that you really have what is on people's mind. So you, you can really develop some patterns and some themes. And I think that is the mark of uh, success at the municipal level is staying in touch with those front door issues and allowing them to motivate you. And uh, and really, if you get them right and, you, and you're speaking the language and the concerns of the community, um, you're, you're set up for success at the municipal level. I really do believe that because uh, as long as you don't cheat on those people, <laughs> you are in your and you're representing them then that's that's the name of the game yeah it's it's wonderful at the municipal level because it's not an agenda driven by um a provincial or federal body like you're not part right. of the government you are yourself representing municipal interests and uh and for that point i mean i've enjoyed the freedom of of being a municipal councillor so you don't really have to align yourself with a particular party when you're running municipally no, you don't. You really don't. And it, it, my advice to people is it's best that you don't, uh, simply because uh, it is. It's a, there's a really diverse viewpoint out there politically. Um, you you have your convictions, um, but and people try to peg you. Trust me, they do. But uh, y- there really is no benefit, and there really is no um, need to align yourself with a political party, simply because uh, at times. I mean, I'm sure we've all voted here. At times, you don't agree with the political party that you voted for, but you you take your vote and you place it with the party that you believe best represents your your interests. So following up on a couple of points you touched on there, so you were employed full-time while running for office. And so like, if you're working 35 hours a week and commuting, um, how much time did you commit each week to campaigning? <laughs> that That's actually one of the, my, my, my proud moments because I got my family behind me. My wife was pregnant at the time with our second. Um, I started in May. October was the election. Uh, five days a week, my wife uh, was very supportive. She still is to this day. We've got a, a great thing going on here. Um, I went out for three hours a night, so I got home around five, five till eight. I stopped ringing the doorbell after about seven thirty because kids go to bed at seven, and uh, and I just put in probably fifteen, twenty hours a week of door knocking. And by the time I picked my head up, uh, I had knocked on seven thousand doors. So. It, it uh, incredible. It it is what it is. Uh, that's the. I mean, uh, you can talk to most counselors. I, again, we were fairly new to Guelph. I mean, we hadn't been here for very long. We'd been here a number of years, but we hadn't been here. We didn't grow up here. I don't have family here, um, and so to build those connections with people, um, you just got to get out there and do it. And uh, you know, if you don't have the advantage of having a platform or having a position, which is which is a high profile position. Um, you really do have to build that support door to door. And again, I would say that's the best way to do it because if you have an existing platform, I would still encourage you to go out and do the door knocking because most of the people that we see now at city hall, when we're holding our meetings are, are not the people that you see on the front doors. And so, you know, you really need to get past that sort of establishment piece of city hall and the influencers at city hall and really get in touch with, um, people who are perhaps less interested in politics and less interested in the city's ongoings, but want to know that they can trust the person that they're sending to City Hall with their vote. Great. Thanks for that answer. Uh, and I guess the last thing I want to touch on about you know running for city council here is, you know, what's your favorite and least favorite part of that you know, sure. three hours a night campaigning was? 
Yeah, that's I. I love that question. Actually, now that I've thought about it, um, there is a there's this euphoric sort of process that you go through where you put your name forward, you go down to city hall, you sign the papers, and your your name goes in the paper, right? And they said, "I've done it. I'm running for city council." <laughs> and then forty eight hours forty eight hours later, you kind of sit back and say, "What have I done?" Right? <laughs> What if I embarrass myself? What if I what if I embarrass my family? What if I what if I alienate friends when I'm making decisions at City Hall that I believe are in the best interest of the city, but they're looking on saying, "Well, I don't like that decision." You know what becomes of that? And so that fear of um, a fear of failure, that fear of of failing to win, really, the only thing that took that away was knocking on doors and getting in touch with people and connecting with people. And over time that fear of failure started building into some momentum and you started seeing people pop up positive news stories on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram. They start saying nice things about you. Oh, I met Dan Gibson tonight. And like those things start building and the motive and sort of the momentum starts building. That was literally my favorite part of the, of the election win, lose or draw, just knowing that I had made those connections with people that I still, you know, I bump into them at the grocery store and, um, those connections were a highlight to running. Yeah. Regardless of the win, obviously the win was pretty, was pretty special too, but um, through the, I was trying to learn things through every process I go through. And that was a, that was a special thing. That was a special moment. Well, and it sounds like those connections are, are things that you've also been able to continue to build on as you've served your community as a counselor, which is got to, got to feel really good as well. So, you, you know, just kind of drawing on that a little bit. I mean, you mentioned the time commitment when you were running, how do you manage your the demands in your time today? Uh, you know, you've been a counselor for a while. What, what does it look like, given that you have a full time job and and you're also a counselor? And you guys are just pushing on those perfect buttons right now. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's a challenge. I, I say to anybody, know what you're getting into. Um, uh, time management is critical. So as I mentioned to you, up until about forty minutes ago, I was homeschooling. Um, staying on top of email, staying on top of meetings, getting, and then I had half an hour to prepare uh, for this call. But, you know, living through your schedule, committed, being committed to your schedule, and then putting things in their appropriate box. And um, it, it, this is a struggle for a lot of uh, political and politicians. It really is because to put the political um, office into its appropriate box and give it the time it needs, but don't give it your entire life. When you don't, when you, put it in with limitations and boundaries, you have time for the rest of your life and you're not seeing the rest of your life being eroded. Um, and so I have, I think I successfully, I, I give my day job, it's time, you know, when that time clock comes, unless it's something really an emergency, I try to put it into its box. I'll see you tomorrow with counsel. It's the same thing. You put in your time, you put in the, re the work requirement, you ask your questions of staff, you build your consensus with your colleagues, you put that time in, um, but I, I kind of thought of something on the weekend because my phone rang a few times on Sunday and I almost wanted to put like a Sunday message up on my phone saying, you know, I am a million times more a dad than a counselor and I am 999,000 times more a husband than I am a counselor. So I'm sorry, I'm not getting back to you on Sundays. Like that's, that's just a boundary that I've put in place. Uh, I think people have come to respect it. And, um, I just think that most people understand that, uh, my life is my life has to be a little bit more than just the office I'm serving for the time. Well, and, and presumably that helps you be 
I mean, helps you both be a better father and a better husband and also be a better counselor to be able to maintain that balance and always stay with a kind of positive outlook on on the different uh, things that you're working on. I agree. And maybe I'll just bring it back to STEM a little bit. You know, as STEM professionals, you'll know in university, our our uh, our workloads through the roof, right? So if you're not if you are not maintaining expectations, you're starting to let people down. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I take on a new challenge like council, I, I really did try my best to set expectations appropriately. It takes a little bit of time to balance it out. Obviously, you know, with a wife and two kids, that takes time to balance out when you take on something new. But now that we're into it, I really try and maintain those expectations so that I'm not, I'm not, not that I'm burning bridges, but I'm not, I'm not missing expectations of what people expect of me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned STEM training. So I'd be interested, how has your STEM training influenced uh, your work as a counselor now that you've been elected? Right. So I I credit my STEM training a lot with some of the convictions that I bring to the office. So uh, the analytical aspect of engineering and science, you know, I'm a natural scientist. I, I studied ecology and, and, and environmental science at university. So really looking at evidence-based um, evidence-based decision and evidence-based, a weighted evidence approach when you're making decisions, that sort of foundational piece is a really important part of politics. It allows you to make decisions um, and stand by your convictions because you believe that the evidence suggests this. I think a lot of politics is, uh, is influence, unfortunately. So a lot of it is uh, there's a political influence that happens when you're representing a community, provincially and federally. Um, a lot of that comes into politics. But I believe if you have uh, strength of your convictions based on something that you believe is firm, um, you, you're you're in a good place. The, the piece that they don't teach you in STEM, though, <laughs> is uh, the interpersonal, the, the relationship building, those those soft skills that are so crucial to maintaining good relationships and getting things done, building consensus, and just sort of the, the soft sort of, I always think of politics as you make a decision, what happens two dominoes downstream? So what happens two degrees downstream of that decision? So who are you, who are you? Um, alienating or who are you making angry with that decision that you're not aware of at the beginning so you know the mm-hmm. I, the easiest one to pick on and I don't mean to do this but the easiest is you know the the science around um, environmental science and climate science mm-hmm. we, we all see the evidence and we all know what those evidence that evidence is uh, we have to make decisions with that as our firm sort of conscious firm foundation on top of that, however, as you know, there's there's social impacts, there's social outfall, there's economic impacts. So all those things come in after the fact once you've got your conviction set. Um, and those sort of pieces, as a scientist, quite often we have to get layered on and realize that, you know, if I make this decision today, this auto manufacturer is leaving. You know, this this company is going to close its doors. I'm going to lose 500 uh, jobs, you know, middle class jobs. We're going to lose 5,000 middle class jobs. Those are the sort of soft skill decision processes that you know, when that when that data comes at us, we kind of pray for wisdom, right? Because <laughs> it is is very hard. Your convictions are one thing, and then you layer on those other pieces of the decision. And and um, anyway, STEM has served me well from that perspective. Is having that strength of conviction. You know, you highlight your convictions uh, as, as a STEM-trained uh, professional. Um, how would you, or how would having more STEM-trained elected officials impact, you know, our political system and how decisions get made as 
I presume you may be one of just a few in in your council, but what if there were more? Yeah. So I, I don't mean to pick on anyone who's not a STEM-trained po- politician, uh, but I, I will say that, um, you know, strength of, strength of conviction means a lot to in politics. I really do believe that. Um, anyone who's going into politics assuming that uh, they're going to be in politics forever is uh, is probably a bad presumption from the outset because really what we need is is we need more conviction. We need people who are willing to w- win or lose on their convictions. Um, and, and when your time is up, your time is up, unfortunately. And, uh, and so having more people with sort of that baseline understanding of, um, I shouldn't say baseline understanding, the baseline training of evidence-based decision-making and then understanding that um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go back one step here. One of the goals that I've had from the beginning, I'll bring it into a personal a personal uh, reflection rather than a, a group reflection. Okay. <laughs> Stop, cut, we'll start over. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The uh, uh, maybe, yeah, a personal reflection when it comes to STEM training is that um, that personal conviction that rubs off on people. So when you are making decisions that um, are shown to be uh, systematic in their approach and you come to a decision, you can literally turn to people in the community and say, you know, I hope, if you don't appreciate or respect my decision, at least you can respect my process. And, and really over time, you know, I have, I have, I believe I have supporters from a very wide spectrum of, um, of, of politics. And, and I'd like to think that even when they don't agree with me, they can respect my approach, respect my arguments and respect my decision-making. Maybe a a great example of this is um, a, a huge decision our community made just a few months ago around a library downtown. So uh, originally, you know, the library was set to be about $42 million. That, that grew to 67, settled in at 62. And there were a lot of pressures from people to say, if you don't support this, you don't support libraries. And when I came to my final decision, I walked people through my process. And I had a lot of people that didn't appreciate the fact that I did not support $67 million for a new library. But at the end of the day, after the battle was fought and the vote was taken and we were all moving on as a city, I had people reach out to me saying, Dan, I didn't agree with your vote, but boy, did I ever agree with your process. You know, I'm happy you lost, but I've gained a new, I have a new respect. You know, thank you for your positive dialogue. Thank you for the way you engaged on this. Um, move on, let's build a library. And that type of, I think that type of um, understanding of process and trust you're working on that trust level with your community that even if they don't agree with you, they're going to respect your process. And I, I'm hoping we'll see, but I'm hoping that leads to a bit more longevity in politics too, that you can agree to disagree and that your relationship can get past disagreements. Um, a lot of the times with, um, I say this more career oriented politicians, it's more um, what is the most, what is the most popular decision at the moment at the time. Um, and, but that I don't believe that leads to longevity. I really don't. Yeah, the the idea of applying the rigorous kind of decision making process and and outlining all the evidence is very scientific, and it's 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 great to hear that you know the feedback from the community is very positive on that. Right. Yeah, you can make decisions. That's right. On that note, um, I guess a follow up question to that is. In your opinion, how do you think we can engage more scientists and engineers in politics in general? 
It's a great question. Um, I'm not going to say anything about the general, the standard engineer, the standard scientist, because you really, there's a very diverse personalities there as well. Uh, if you have an interest in serving in your community beyond uh, your your household, so if you're if you're coaching sports, if you're coaching dance, if you're coaching piano, or you're teaching lessons, or you're involved in that community, just if that is something that motivates you and and, and gives you some sort of fulfillment, just keep following that path. Keep walking down the hallway, walk through every door that gets opened. Um, I wouldn't suggest waking up one morning and deciding I'm going to run for council. Like it's a big step. Um, and unless you have some real supports around you, it's, it's, it's a very difficult task to take on. But again, if you are motivated by, um, connecting with your community, those are types of things that sort of lead you towards, um, uh, uh, running for a municipal or provincial or federal, uh, seat. So if your background is in science, I would encourage you to, or in engineering, I would encourage you to take a good hard look at it because we do need sound decision-making, um, strong evidence-based decision-making that is, um, that will stand through that sort of, um, strength of conviction to make the good, to make the good decisions and then allow those sort of connections with your community to sort of soften your, soften your lenses and see all the different ramifications of decision-making that can really start molding you into a, a terrific decision-maker. And, and really you are, you're representing the community, but you are, you're you're making decisions and um, good, bad, or, or or ugly. And our guests so far have pretty consistently said when we've asked them that question that I mean the Canadian political system and and the opportunities to engage um, in a spirit of public service are are really uh, pretty accessible uh, here in Canada. They are not true everywhere, but it certainly seems is true here. And so everyone is, has given us some variety of that message about go out and get involved in your community in some way and, and try it on for size. Uh, see if it's something that you enjoy and that motivates you and forms part of that core of, of who you want to be or who you are. And if it does, then it's something that you can really pursue. I agree. When you hear the stories about um, provincial or federal politicians, uh, they come. They come from all walks of life. There's no oligarchy or there's no sort of ruling class in this country. They can be anybody that steps forward. Um, and the stories that you hear about uh, personal stories or, or backgrounds uh, is is terrific. It's a, it's a it's a good nod to our Canadian political system where it really is a representative government. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So turning your attention a little bit to your to what being a a counselor looks like. So what do you what does your day to day look like? What do you spend your time on? Good question. Uh, so in a week where we have a meeting, I will put time in studying my reports, uh, getting in touch with staff if need be, uh, calling other counselors, seeing where they sit on things, um, speaking to the mayor a fair bit. Uh, the mayor is a, I would call him a close friend. Um, so just again, understanding the business of the city, what's going on. Your email box is always filling up. So I have a development application um, a few blocks away from my house that I, I didn't see as a huge hot button issue. But in the last week and a half, I've probably had four dozen people individually call or write me uh, expressing concerns about that development. So that's going to take some time. Uh, I've got my questions written out and I'm ready to go next week. But um, the day to day, I would say people sometimes ask me, well, what's your time commitment for council? And I would say, Probably about 15 to 20 hours a week mm -hmm. is on average. Uh, a lot of that time is spent uh, on the phone. 
So uh, I mentioned to you my commute earlier today. So my afternoon commute is quite oftentimes, you know, Bluetooth, talking to people on the way home, getting that out of the way. And then when the kids go down, if I need to respond to some email or, or sort of digest a report, um, that's what I'm doing. On Saturdays, I really try to um, take the time away and just be in the community. So if I used to say to my wife, we're going to try and do four community events a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, my community events are hockey rink, hockey rink, baseball diamond, and baseball diamond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got two kids and everything. But, um, you know, just being out in the community. And, uh, and then on Sundays, obviously, I try and shut things down and just recharge for, for Monday. Okay, well, this has been this has been really interesting. We want to turn it over to you a little bit and ask you if there's something that you're excited about, uh, either a, a local initiative or something going on that, that you've sure. been part of that you want to highlight uh, to our politics curious listeners. Yeah, that's a great question. You may have it. You may get a different question from you know upper levels of government but at the municipal level. Uh, I. The same things that motivated me six years ago, seven years ago, are still motivating me today. So through this year's budget process, uh, I was able to get some money accounted for for a splash pad at a park um, a few blocks away. Uh, Again, geography in the city is what it is. We've got massive amounts of growth here in the east end of the city, but we don't have a lot of the amenities that the rest of the city has. So just getting that sort of design work into the budget I'm really excited for the families and uh, community out here just to have that sort of attraction in this area of the city. The second piece, again, not not a lot of glitz and glam, but um, we have one of the worst roads <laughs> in my ward, York Road, a top five every year, CAA wrote, uh, rated for in terms of condition. Um, in 2014, I ran on getting that rebuilt. Uh, and now finally we're starting to see phase one and phase two being reconstructed in the downtown and making its way out to this end of the city. So um, again, the same things that sort of motivated me before, these are things that people care about. They do. They, you know, if the garbage gets missed, they want to know that the, the city's coming back to pick it up. Um, if their street hasn't been plowed in 48 hours, they'd like to know where the plow is. Those are things that, um, that when you, when you sit on the front door and you you sort of get away from the the rigmarole of policymaking at city hall, those things that really matters to people. And it really, you know, it sets you in good standing um, to make decisions on their behalf when you're taking care of those small things for them as well. The, the fact that these things are so tangible has got to make it very rewarding to be seeing progress made on them. Absolutely. When a crosswalk goes in, I get a photo. I, like I don't do a ribbon cutting. I'm not that. I'm not that bad. <laughs> but I'll put a photo up and say, you know what? We heard you, and I and we're listening. We're trying to work for these things. Those are really important issues for people. Um, even when a new asphalt layer goes down, or new bike lanes, or something goes in that's special in the neighborhood, you make sure that you you remind people that that's what we're working towards. Um, that's what, and you're hearing their concerns, and you're getting them done. So, yeah. That again, I think that that it's probably a a huge motivation for me is to just getting things done for people. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks Dan for that. Um, And your insights have been quite revealing, especially given this is the first municipal uh, discussion we've had. So thank you. No problem. Um, I want to zoom out a little bit for the last segment and really go to more high level policy for this. Where's the most important piece of science and politics, you know, over the next 50 years. Oh, great question. I think if we're relying on if we're relying on status quo 
in terms of our standard of living in this country, we really do need to embrace technology and we do really need to, to embrace the idea of, um, you know, science, science and technology kind of got us into this problem and science and technology are kind of going to get us out of it. Um, if, if you believe in the status quo, I don't know that that's the accepted theory anymore. I'd like to believe that my children's lives are going to be better than mine. Um, if not from a materialism perspective, from an overall health and well-being perspective. Um, and so embracing the idea of uh, technolo technological supports, not turning your backs on them, but embracing them, I think is, is, an, important, is an important understanding and acknowledgement in society that you, know, you can speak about, well, anything that you touch on when it comes to population growth or, or immigration, there's immediate labels placed on the whole conversation. And so we just have to be, again, self-atonement, self, um, self-attainment, uh, self-direction in life is really what the Charter of Rights and Freedoms sort of speaks to. And I think if we're marrying science and technology with that, I think that we'll be, I think that we'll be fine. It's funny, Dan, that you mentioned that because uh, you know I, I've done a little bit of reflecting over what motivates me and what what's exciting for me and what gets me up and uh, and and what makes me want to contribute to organizations like Alexstem or what I do for my day job. And really, what it comes down to is um, I believe science, kind of writ broadly, science and technology has been a good thing. Uh, and to your point, it, it's meant that our generation, um, you know, has, has so many more opportunities available to us than we did 100 years ago. And I want to see science be able to, to continue to make that contribution to society. I agree. And again, I'll, I'll bring it back uh, even further. I mean, 100 years ago, uh, I have a, like the, a small um, sort of... Um, I have a small surgery that I'm waiting on. COVID is uh, impacting that surgery. It's not, not overly health-related. It's just a very small uh, elective surgery that I, I probably need to get done. A hundred years ago, that would just be with me for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. with, but with science and technology, that's going to repair my body, um, and, and it's going to be something that probably gives me, you know, if you, you're projected over the course of a lifetime, may allow me to live another 15 years. So mm -hmm. it's uh, those are the types of things, I mean, Longevity and life expectancy are a great dictator of how science and technology have really helped us along the way. So it's been yeah. good. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dan, for spending time with us today on Periodically Political. It was a pleasure, and we really appreciate the insight you've given our politics-curious listeners. Sure. I love the name, by the way, Periodically Political. That's terrific. Thank you. Thank <laughs> I, you. I happen to be periodically political, too. So <laughs> thanks so much for having me. Uh, it was our pleasure. And for our listeners, if you like this episode, we encourage you to rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners discover the show. 